Welcome to another episode of the Gun Blog Variety Cast with your hosts Sean Sorrentino and Aaron Paulette. Sitting in for Aaron this week is Weird Beard. Welcome to episode 132 of the Gun Blog Variety Cast, a proud member of the Self Defense Radio Network. How are you doing, Weird? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, Sean. It was 60 degrees in Massachusetts today. This introduces what I assume is a New England phenomenon. When the weather first gets out of the 50s here, people just get as close to naked as they can, and then they just go outside. I swear, in August, when it's in the 80s and 90s, people will be wearing more clothes than they do today. Does that happen (laughs) down south? No, not at all. I never notice anybody get naked around here and run around as soon as it warms up, because they'd be out on like January the 2nd. (laughs) Oh, I like the south better than up here. (laughs) Well, it's warmed up enough that I've been riding my bicycle again. So far, it's been 36 miles in three rides this week, and I'm going to do another one this weekend, I think. I'm trying to keep that up for the rest of the year, or at least the rest of the warm part of the year. Usually around October, it starts, the end of October, early November, it starts to get a little cold for me riding around. I don't want to do it anymore. So from now until then, three, four times a week, I'm going to be out on the bike. That sounds awesome. So the dog's doing something strange. Now she's climbing into the bathtub just at random. I was in the bedroom talking to the wife, and we hear this clump, 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 kathunt. I'm like, what the heck is that? The dog had climbed into the big bathtub in the bathroom. I'm like, what is she doing in there? So I grabbed my cell phone, and I ran in there, flipped the light on, and took a picture of her, and I got this dog looking at me like, nothing. <laughs> so do you have a dog, Weird? Uh, I have a daughter. And she actually, when she was, I think, like one, did the exact same thing of the, <laughs> started climbing over the edge of the bathtub and then all of a sudden her weight shifted and suddenly she was handstanding and then suddenly he was in the bathtub (laughs) empty bathtub of course and just sitting there going well that just happened now what (laughs) yeah well your daughter is used to being put into the bathtub in order to get a bath right yes dysis gets taken outside and hosed off or we take her to a place called unleashed which has a self-service dog wash they clean up the mess after you're done you get all the shampoo you need and dog treats and a real metal dog wash bath thing sprayer hose is awesome so for like i think it's like 15 bucks and like i said they keep the mess you keep the dog so i have no idea why she thinks getting in the bathtub is a good idea i mean i put her in there so that i can brush her teeth i'll have a place to sit and then you know if i slop doggy toothpaste all over the place it ends up in the bathtub maybe she wants some more chicken flavored toothpaste (laughs) maybe she's like i need my teeth brushed I'm sitting here politely. (laughs) I have no idea what she's thinking. After I brushed her teeth the last time, I rinsed out the bathtub because, of course, there's going to be a little dog hair in there. The next day, there's all these dog footprints inside the bathtub. And the wife's like, I know you put her in there to brush her teeth. Why didn't you wash the tub out? I'm like, I did. I rinsed it out. I don't know what's going on. So I went and I cleaned the bathtub again. Two days later, there's doggy footprints all over the bathtub again. The dog was climbing into the bathtub and then walking around in there. And I was getting blamed for it. I was getting blamed for the muddy footprints, at least. (laughs) Maybe does she know that that there's warm water in the bathtub and that the hose only comes in one temperature? (laughs) I guess. I don't know. It's just a, you know, weird thing that the dog does. I I can't, I I don't even know how that works, but you know. Dogs are weird. And your dog's pretty weird. (laughs) She is. (laughs) Who knows what goes on in the mind of dogs? 
less than you'd think. <laughs> Not this one. There's gears turning in her head. That dog's pretty smart, as dogs go. Thanks to Lucky Gunner and Remington for their support of the Gunblog Variety Cast. From Golden Saber to Range Rounds, get a full lineup of quality Remington ammo that ships fast at LuckyGunner.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Just when you thought gun rights were safe in Alabama. Beth recently discovered that a group calling themselves Outcast Voters League has proposed 12 ridiculous changes to Alabama's gun laws. It seems that no state can be spared the anti-gun rhetoric. I know that my home state of Alabama isn't perfect when it comes to our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. But I have been pretty impressed by how we've taken a stand against a lot of the anti-gun organizations and people. But one thing that happened the other day did catch my attention. Apparently, a Birmingham organization and a state representative held a press conference to propose changes to our state's gun laws. Now, this group is called the Outcast Voters League, and they spoke out about a proposed Sherry Williams Mandatory Gun Changes Act, which was named for a woman who was killed in Alabama not too long ago by a stray bullet. The strange thing is, the leader of the Outcast Voters League says that they're not against gun rights, but they just demand accountability and responsibility of gun owners. That always makes me wonder, what in the world do they need us to do that we aren't already doing? These random bullets and these shootings aren't happening because of responsible gun owners. At any rate, here are the 12 changes they proposed to make to Alabama's gun laws. Number one. Mandatory gun registration, with owner having a registration card that lists all weapons. The second proposed change, no transfers unless done through a registration office. Number three, new purchases must be picked up at the registration office. Number four, mandatory gun safes, and only the registered owner will have the combination. This just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Safe storage is a fantastic idea, and it definitely should be recommended and supported, but only the registered owner has the combination? What happens if someone breaks in the home and the registered owner isn't there? The next change includes mandatory gun safety classes. Now, I am a huge proponent of firearm safety and education, but whenever the word mandatory comes up, you just have to stop and pause and think. This is our constitutional right. This is something that shall not be infringed. Once you start proposing registrations and mandatory this or mandatory that, you are deteriorating that right. And that's exactly why the word infringe was used in the first place. Another proposed change is that open carry and concealed carry policies would be abolished. What in the world does that even mean? No one can carry in any way, shape, or form? The next change is that the waiting period for gun purchase would be extended to three months to allow all paperwork to pass. The next one is that people under 21 would be prohibited from owning guns. I think about Amanda Johnson and her situation. She was a responsibly armed student who was not able to have her gun on campus. And even though she had a permit and every right to have that firearm, She was not able to take it with her on campus, and one evening, as she was walking to her car, she was raped, and she had no way to protect herself. 
And that's all that comes to my mind when I think about this kind of proposed change. Number nine in their list is that there needs to be extensive mental evaluation. And I'm assuming that means extensive mental evaluation for anyone who wants to purchase a gun or own a gun. Who is actually in charge of this extensive mental evaluation? And what exactly are they looking at? What are the criteria? All this does is chip away or attempt to chip away at our right to keep and bear arms. The next one is mandatory liability insurance for firearms. I have no problem with having insurance. I think that is a fantastic idea. I work for a company, the USCCA, that provides self-defense insurance. But again, the word mandatory is where I would have to put my foot down. I can't support that. I can't support more regulations, more restrictions, or anything that could potentially keep good people from being able to have a tool of protection. Number 11 on their proposed changes is that there would be required reporting of stolen firearms within four hours of discovery. Finally, number 12 on the changes proposed is that ammo purchases were made only for the caliber gun specified on registration. Apparently, if you don't have a registration card that lists that, oh, I don't know, 44 Magnum, then you can't even buy that 44 Magnum ammo. All I know is that the state of Alabama and everybody else better wake up and pay attention to what is happening in their communities and in their government. Keep your eyes and ears open. Do some research. Make a difference. For everyone else out there, I wish you all the best in your situations as well. Until next time, stay safe and be well armed. You can read more from Beth at usconcealedcarry.com forward slash blog and click on pacifiers and peacemakers in the left sidebar. This podcast runs on your donations. Go to gunblogvarietycast.com and click on the donate or the subscribe button in the right sidebar. You can make a one-time donation of any amount or subscribe for as little as $2 a month. I know that doesn't sound like much, but we pay our server costs monthly and a little help from you is a big help to us. Felons behaving badly. Pair aim gun at NC Trooper. Ram cruiser during chase and crash, officials say. Dateline Charlotte, North Carolina. The North Carolina Highway Patrol said two people were arrested Sunday morning after a high-speed chase that ended in a crash. Suspect 1 and Suspect 2 were arrested and faced several charges including resisting arrest and assault on a trooper. Troopers say the two were driving over 100 miles per hour on I-77 early Sunday morning. They also drove at high speeds through several neighborhoods. The pair reportedly crashed when trying to turn near Oakdale and Brookshire Freeway. During the chase, troopers say the two rammed the trooper's car and then pointed a gun at the trooper. No shots were fired. The trooper was taken to the hospital with minor injuries and is expected to be okay. We're told at least one suspect was treated for minor injuries. All right, so now comes the part where you get to tell us what lovely human beings these guys were. Well, you know, I would, except I didn't actually make a list because the list was so freaking long. Oh my goodness. Damage to property, misdemeanor class 2. Possessed with intent to sell, schedule 6, felon class I. Larceny of firearms, felon class H. Breaking and entering vehicles, felon class I. Safe cracking, safe robbery, felon class I. Two counts interfere with a monitoring device. Felon Class I, Larceny of Firearms Again, Gang Discharge Firearms Enclosed, I had never even heard of that one, Class 3 Misdemeanor, this guy's like making stuff up to get in trouble for, and 
enough counts of breaking and entering vehicles. It looks like five of them fell in class I to, you know, like that right there, it'd be like a full career for most criminals. And larceny over a thousand fell in class H. And you know what? According to this, the total incarceration time that he's suffered in the course of his 24 years of doing these things, 24 years old and all that stuff, he's managed to do, I think the first one is 2009. So he's been actively causing trouble for, what is that, eight years now? He's gotten a year and eight months in prison. We have a legal system, not a justice system. I am telling you, that was suspect number one. Suspect number two, of course, much easier to read his rap sheet. Two counts of possession of a firearm by a felon, felon class G, with nothing else. So what does that tell you? That means he got a felony conviction in some other state. I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't see it. Two years, five months in prison. Two counts of possession of a firearm by a felon. And he got his probation revoked. So he went back to jail. And the possession of a firearm by a felon were two different days. So it was two different times he got caught. So it looks like he got caught once, he was on probation, got caught with a gun again, and went back to jail for post-release revocation and maybe a little bit more punishment for the second time. Two different times, two different times in jail, possession of a firearm by a felon, and he spends two years and five months in jail. And people wonder why I want to carry a gun. Mm -hmm. These crazy people are running around. And it's not like the cops can do much about them. As soon as they throw them in jail, they let them back out. But you know, Sean, we're the real problem. That's why they direct all these anti-gun laws against us. Seriously, it must be. I, I, I don't get it. Why? How, it's amazing the world is as safe as it is, given all the people they keep letting out of jail. Mm -hmm. Baron is on assignment and will return soon. Hey, this is Lloyd Bailey, the Armed Lutheran, host of the Armed Lutheran radio podcast, reminding you that the podcast you're listening to is a proud member of the Self-Defense Radio Network. Check out all the great content at selfdefenseradio.net. The main topic segment. So like everybody else, we're going to be talking about the Fourth Circuit decision in Colby versus Hogan. I hope I'm pronouncing Colby's name correctly. The decision that says, oh no. The Second Amendment does not cover military-looking weapons. Mm hmm Oh. I wanted to get Andrew Branca's views on this subject. In fact, I actually had a contact from one of the people who listens to the podcast. He's like, hey, next time you talk to Andrew, ask him what he thinks. Well, Andrew says, you know what? I'm in the middle of some other things and didn't have time to write it, but I, you know you should totally read this article on National Review that is written by Charles C.W. Cook. He says, it's everything I would have written, except it's written more concisely and, you know, better quality English. So you should totally read this guy's stuff because it's exactly what I would say. One of the paragraphs, the one that I think the most quotable, I guess, as Judge Traxler's dissent pointedly establishes, the majority achieved this transformation by contriving a heretofore unknown test, which is whether the firearm in question is most useful in military service. In effect, this test is designed to permit judges to determine that any weapon they might dislike is unprotected by the Second Amendment and can therefore be prohibited with impunity. Forget that Heller contains its own explicit tests. Forget the common use standard. Forget the dangerous and unusual standard. There's a new kid in town, and he's coming for your rifles. The state of Maryland decided, you know what, we're going to ban anything that is an AR-15 or looks like an AR-15 or an AK or whatever. 
And we're going to have the old, I think it was in this case, it was one factor test. If it had, I don't know, Maryland laws are crazy on guns. I found that out accidentally by living in Maryland. Don't do that. Don't make that mistake. I live in Massachusetts. I've already made that mistake. Actually, no, I think you'd be better off in Massachusetts than Maryland. Uh, Not with Mara Healy. Well, yeah, okay, but. Mara Healy's going to go to jail for something here soon, isn't she? Um, Probably not jail, but something's going to happen. There's a whole bunch of people looking for her. One of them's going to get her. <laughs> so here's the thing that I am just, I just don't get. The decision itself says, we are convinced that the banned assault weapons and large capacity magazines are among those arms that are, quote, like, quote, M16 rifles quote, weapons that are most useful in military service, unquote, which the Heller court singled out as being beyond the Second Amendment's reach. See 554 U.S. at 627, rejecting the notion that the Second Amendment safeguards M16 rifles and the like. I looked through Heller. I did a, like a global search of Heller, and I never found any M16 mm-hmm. or rifles and the like. I don't see these words in there anywhere. I have no idea what they're quoting and saying that Heller says the M16 is not covered by the Second Amendment. I just don't see it. I mean, not in the decision, not in the dissent. Somebody needs to clarify for me, at least, where in the world do these words come from? Where are they getting this, this, this view that Heller doesn't cover those type of weapons. That wasn't a discussion for Heller. Heller was about, can I own a 22 caliber revolver and keep it in a condition where I could use it for immediate self-defense? That's all Heller was about. So I, I don't understand where they're getting this. Uh, Heller says that M16s and rifles like it, they're military service weapons. So therefore they're not covered by the second amendment. Yeah. And what are they doing? Are they just picking Rifles that are like an M- M16 in what way? Is it the lower? Uh, it's one of those, yeah. like, you know, is it a, does it have this feature test? Weapons that have features. I mean, it's the same garbage we oh, see everywhere. Oh, yeah. But I'm just, I'm pointing out the fact that, like, the only semi auto only AR pattern rifles that are issued to the military are sniper and designated marksman guns, like super duper specialty ones. And right. hey, guess what? You know, yeah, your Remington Model 700 hunting gun is a sniper rifle in that sense, but they're not going to talk fact, about those. In fact, it is. Or your Sig 320. That is Uh-oh. a military style handgun. It's not a military style handgun. It's the gun that they adopted. Well, yours doesn't have the, the uh, thumb safety that I think they're they're going to be issuing. Oh, oh, so if I don't have the thumb safety on it, it's not military-like? No, it's going to be military-like. Like these people <laughs> decided that semi-auto AR-15s were enough like M16s that they don't, they don't fall under the Second Amendment. So I don't have a thumb safety on my handgun, and mine happens to be the compact model, not the full size? Oh, well, you know, we'll give you a pass on that. Come on now. Yeah, and then you can even go once, once, once you say that you're really with striking distance of Glocks and M and P's and any other striker right. fired gun. What is the practical difference between a Glock 17 and a Sig P320? From the perspective of the person getting shot, none at all. It feels different in your hand. That's it. So what prevents them from saying, "Well, you know, that's heck." They issued Glock 19s to Delta Force. Well, we need to ban them. Hey, guess what? That's not a flaw. That's a feature. Well, yeah, you're right. Now, I think this is an incredibly novel idea. I mean, like this takes brass right here for decades, literally 
decades. The anti-gunners have been telling us, no, 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 the Second Amendment doesn't cover individuals. It only covers state militias. The National Guard is your state militia. So the Second Amendment just says we can have weapons for the National Guard, right? And now they're going to turn around. They're going to tell us, oh, no, no military-style weapons. You know, those aren't protected by the Second Amendment. How does this work? What kind of weapons aren't most useful for the military? Like you said, my Remington Model 700, I mean, aside from the fact that it has a wood stock instead of, you know, a, a, a rubber stock that I can spray paint. Five, five minutes and a screwdriver, I'm just saying. Seriously. And maybe I don't like the barrel because the barrel is like a hunting lightweight barrel. I could put on, you know, a heavier barrel so that it doesn't move around so much when I shoot more than a couple of rounds, right? That's, there's no freaking difference. I got a scope on it, just like snipers do. Oh my goodness. So what kind of weapons are not useful for military service? Sticks? No, those are called spears. Mm -hmm. The Scottish stopped the English army at Bannockburn with not a whole lot more than sharp sticks. Okay, so are we going to ban them too? I mean, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You can't say that the Second Amendment, which says right in it, in order to have a militia, the people are allowed to have guns. And then say... The people are allowed to have guns that are not useful for militia service. Do the people even freaking read what they're writing? They don't need to. <laughs> they're not using facts and logic here. They want to ban the guns, and then they're going to say whatever they feel like they can get away with saying to go ahead and ban those guns. I, I, this is consistent behavior. What is it you always say? They're not arguing in good faith. They're not arguing in good faith. This is word salad. They just threw a bunch of words against the wall to see what stuck. They're completely insane in this. I, I this 116 pages of decision and like rebuttals and stuff like that. And I was just like, I haven't gotten very far into it. And honestly, I don't have the legal background to understand. And you know what? I, I can't see things from their perspective because I can't get my head that far up my butt. But they're 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 talking about oh well you know he could pull the trigger this many times and it's it's just as fast as the machine gun uh seriously that that's that's how you decided to figure this out basically what the decision said was that the AR15 which again has never been issued to any soldier in the United States military or any other because you can pull the trigger really fast, you could get 300 to 500 rounds per minute, which is virtually indistinguishable from a machine gun. Now, I've been right next to machine guns if they've been fired. The saw shoots at about 1,100 rounds per minute. The M60 shoots, well, I think it's six to 800 rounds a minute. There is no freaking way I could get that much ammo out of an AR-15. This is not going to happen. Give me a minute and I, you, I don't know. I, there's no way I can put that many rounds out. But I think it's kind of interesting, the, the dissent, quoted again by the National Review article, Charles C.W. Cook, the majority's assertion might surprise the United States Army, which sets the maximum effective rates of the M4 and M16 series rifles operating in semi-automatic mode at 45 to 65 rounds a minute. So 300 to 500, according to the judge, 45 to 65 from the Army. Um, if you had to take one side or the other on this argument, weird, would you listen to the people who actually fight with the thing or something like it or a judge who apparently doesn't know a great deal about military weapons? Well, obviously the one that's went to law school, because that's what you learn about guns. Exactly. How in the world are you going to fire 30 rounds in five seconds and continually do that for the course of a minute? 
Like I can't change magazines that fast. That's another point. When I did talk to Andrew, when he was telling me, hey, just read Charles C.W. Cook's article, Andrew did say that the decision is a legal train wreck, of course, which is probably the nicest way I've ever heard Andrew say this is completely stupid. If you've ever seen him go off on somebody, I was like, that was awful polite of you, Andrew, to say it's a legal train wreck. Thankfully, we can read this on the show without beeps. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, anybody who knows anything at all about the Second Amendment and about firearms would like to point and laugh, except there's nothing funny about this. We now have the Fourth Circuit, which covers Maryland down here to North Carolina, and I think West Virginia as well, I'm not entirely certain, saying the amendment that says we need to have a militia, and because we need to have a militia, the people need to have guns, is saying that they need to have guns that aren't suitable for militia service. Yes. And there's not suitable for ministry service because we said so. Effectively, yeah, because we said so. I, I, I just don't even know what to say to that. I mean, that's like toddler logic. I mean, you've got a, to- you've got a child. Yeah. What kind of strange things come out of that child's mouth? Are they even this dumb? Um, no, they're not that dumb. They're, they're much more surreal. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just, I, just, this is just completely mystifying. In the show notes, there'll be a link to the article. There'll also be a link to the decision, which, as I said, is 116 pages long if you want to try to wade through it, if you can stand it. But honestly, pretty much everybody's talked about this. Charles C.W. Cook talks about it. A whole bunch of other people have talked about it. And basically, everybody who reads it says, this is completely insane. There's, there's, there's nothing here. There's no good reason for this. And honestly... We can't have a legal system that just says, because I said so. It just doesn't work that way. Something that's also very interesting about this court, did you catch the makeup of this court? Uh, actually, no, I didn't look that over. It was a 10 to 4 ruling, and the majority, Judge King, President Clinton, Chief Judge Roger Gregory, recess appointed by Clinton, but then George W. Bush put him on the bench permanently. Judge Harvey Wilkinson concurs. He is appointed by, he was appointed by Reagan. Judge Motts, Clinton. Judge Keenan, Obama. Judge Wynn, Obama. Judge Floyd, Obama. Judge Thacker, Obama. Judge Harris, Obama. I think I heard Ted Cruz talking about how 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the Fourth Circuit was the most conservative circuit. Let's just count up the number of people on here. There's, it was a 10 to 4 decision. In the 10, There was one person who was appointed by Reagan. There was one person who was appointed by Clinton and was confirmed or reappointed or whatever by George W. Bush. So that's two and a half. So there's three in the dissent. So that's four and a half, I guess, if we want to count it that way. So four and a half. And then appointed by a Democrat, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight and a half. So four and a half to eight and a half. Mm -hmm. That's how far the fourth circuit has gone. This is why a couple of weeks ago we talked about how it was, you know, it's great that we get all into the Kardashians of, you know, the judicial system talking about the Supreme Court. But there are over a hundred open federal judgeships that are eligible to be appointed by our new president. And this is why we need them filled, because we have courts that are completely left-wing courts now. 
who just want to make stuff up like, oh, well, you know, I know you're supposed to have a militia, but um, yeah, we're not going to have one because you can't have military grade weapons or even ones that look like military grade weapons. And the Supreme Court can only hear so many appeals. This is why we need to pay attention. It started out as movie week for Tiffany, but now it's movie two weeks. This week, Tiffany reviews the run and gun shootout extravaganza in John Wick 2. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Till you climb inside of his skin, walk around in it. Hey guys, Tiffany here, and I have some good news. It is movie week this week. Yay! And actually, even better, I've got a double dose of movie weeks. Not only is this week movie week, but next week is going to be movie week as well. I've got two reviews for you guys, which made my segment end up being like 85 minutes long. And so Sean, in his infinite wisdom, (laughs) has decided that it would probably be much better for our audience if we split that segment into two, which, of course, why didn't I think of that? So the next two weeks are going to be about movies. First, we're going to talk about John Wick. Next week, we're going to talk about a cool movie called I Am Not Your Negro. So stay tuned for that. But first, John Wick. I did not see the first John Wick because honestly, the previews didn't do it for me. It looks stupid and, you know, kind of gratuitous gun porn kind of thing, which doesn't You know, it's just not my thing. But since the first one came out, I noticed that a lot of my good buddies from the gun community have become part of this little cult, (laughs) cult following of John Wick. And there was so much excitement about the second one coming out that I said, okay, maybe I should give this movie a try. And I did. So for those of you who haven't seen the trailer, here's a little snip. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? Whoever comes, I'll kill them all. John Wick. You're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it. Okay, so as you can see, it is an action movie through and through. And I guess what helped me to kind of get over my snobbery about this movie was to just accept the fact that it never claimed to be any more than a shoot 'em up bang bang action flick. It's a revenge story about sheer doggedness to get even, to even the score, and that's all it ever claims to be. Doesn't pretend to be anything else. And so once I got over expecting the movie to, you know, change my life or <laughs> or be Oscar worthy or anything like that, then I was actually able to enjoy it a whole lot more. So what I like about the movie, some of this stuff is shallow, but I'll just tick off a few things. I loved the dog, (laughs) the dog with no name, who's just referred to as dog, who happens to be one of the most beautiful, most regal looking pit bulls on earth. I don't know if the dog was in the first movie, still haven't seen the first one, probably will go back and see it now, but the dog was amazing. Um, I also like the Kimber shout out. There's a little Kimber shout out in there. So for all of the Kimber fans like me, 
Um, you've you've got some Kimber eye candy going on, and I like that they were specific about the brand. They were accurate about round counts and that sort of thing. So it was a it was a pretty loyal bit of red meat for the gun community, which I thought was great. Perhaps more importantly, I really like the gun handling. There's a lot of two-handed shooting, which is not very Hollywood-like. Um, John Wick, for the most part, makes an attempt to bring the gun up to eye level. Uh, I I won't go so far as to say he's aligning his sights, <laughs> but but he does at least you know simulate sight alignment in a way that goes far beyond what we typically see in Hollywood flicks. So that was awesome. And I know that Keanu Reeves went through a hella training regimen to prepare for these movies. So kudos to him on that. The gun handling, I thought, was really, really good. There's a scene of three gun work, which all of you folks who do three gun stuff, you will just salivate over this scene. So I won't spoil it for you, but go see the movie. The three gun scene was worth the price of admission, even without the rest of the movie. Here's something else. And this may sound a little bit strange. I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but in my former life, uh, you know, 30 years and 50 pounds ago, I was a choreographer. I worked for many years as a choreographer and trained teams of dancers for exhibitions and competitions and stuff like that. And so that side of me really loved the coordinated movement in this movie. There were lots of scenes where there were at least two people interacting with each other, fight scenes and that kind of thing, but others where there were lots of people interacting with each other in long extended action scenes and usually that's not very well done or or I see problems that annoy me <laughs> but here it was really fluidly choreographed in that sense the movie has a sort of kinesthetic intelligence that really resonated with me and I appreciated that. Again, I realize it's all choreographed, but it was the visual kind of ballet of movement, especially as lots of people coordinated with each other, I thought was really, really effective. So a couple of things I hated about the movie, um, which probably won't surprise I hated the lack of trigger finger discipline. This is a real pet peeve of mine with Hollywood. I'm willing to accept that guns do magical things in movies. That's why they call it fiction, and that's fine. But I think that the the tendency to just rest your trigger finger on your trigger all the time in the movies is just annoying and honestly I I think having that image subconsciously drilled into the minds of teenagers nationwide every time they go see any movie that has anything to do with firearms probably contributes just as much to a lot of the accidents that happen as a result of unsafe practices as anything else. So here is my desperate plea to Hollywood. Please start having your actors exercise trigger finger discipline. (laughs) I know it won't happen, but that's my plea. One other thing that I kind of hated about John Wick, well, I didn't hate it necessarily, but it just, it just sort of had that kind of popcorn in your teeth sort of effect. It's just a mild annoyance. Actually, by the way, in case you didn't know, there is a WikiHow article on how to remove popcorn holes from your teeth. Did you know that? I did not know that. 
Anyway, so the, the, the popcorn in the teeth part of the movie was the fact that John Wick had this blind allegiance to a very specific shot pattern. I mean, he was absolutely religious about body shot, head shot. Every bad guy he encountered got one to the chest and one to the head. There was almost zero target discrimination. And instead, it was just body shot, headshot, body shot, headshot. Hey, over there, body shot, headshot, body shot, headshot. Hey, somebody right in front of me, body shot, headshot. And it just started to feel a little obsessive compulsive to me after the first, I don't know, 98,452 engagements that apparently required the exact same body shot, headshot pair. Speaking of headshots, by the way, one day, if you are really good, perhaps Aaron will share a funny secret with you about why this segment had to be emergently edited at the last minute in order to avoid breaking the internet. (laughs) But I digress. Anyway, so the only time John Wick deviated from this body shot headshot pattern was when his equipment ran dry. That got a little old to me. But to end on a high note, this brings me back to the one of the strong suits of the film for those of us who noticed gun handling and that was that there were actual reloads in the film. His gun did run dry and he did have to work out that problem. And so that was cool to watch. There was actual holster work and mag pouch work, right? Which you almost never see in movies. And it was a pretty standard, you know, strong side hip kind of thing, which I thought was pretty cool. Not a whole lot of producing firearms from behind your ear or that sort of crap. So again, even though I was hesitant at first, I'm glad I saw John Wick 2. I really did enjoy it. And it occurs to me now in hindsight that for someone who eats, sleeps, and breathes superhero movies, it's a little hypocritical of me to knock a movie for being unrealistic. So so with that perspective in mind, I think John Wick 2 was pretty cool. To all my trainer buddies out there who do consulting work on films or who know people who do consulting work on these films, please help us fight the good fight. Please tell these studios about firearm safety rule number three. Keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on target and you've decided to shoot. Don't hug the trigger while running. Don't hug the trigger while pistol whipping somebody. Don't hug the trigger while tumbling down a flight of stairs. And don't hug the trigger while having a conversation with somebody that you haven't yet decided to shoot. Okay, so that's it for this week. But again, be sure to listen next week for my review of the new documentary film, I Am Not Your Negro. Until then, stay safe and keep it centered and even. You can follow Tiffany at FrontSightPress.com. And now it's time for Blue Collar Prepping with that bratty kid sister of the gun blogosphere, Erin Paulette. Come on, every pony! It's time for Blue Collar Prepping with Erin Paulette! Hello, ponies. This is Erin Paulette. Oh, wait, no. Erin's out this week. So not only did she request I fill in on hosting, but she had a topic she wanted to cover but wasn't an expert on the subject. She's read articles talking about how you can walk into pet stores and allegedly get medicines for fish that might work if you ever found yourself in need of life-saving medications in a world without doctors or pharmacies. So as many of you may know, I have a degree in marine science and worked as a marine biologist for about seven years. I also now have been working in biomedical research for the last 10 years. 
Further, my wife is a pharmaceutical chemist with a wide wealth of knowledge in the industry, and we looked over the information I found before I recorded this segment. Okay, so what did I find? I was a bit surprised, as fish biology, specifically saltwater fish, which is my expertise, is vastly different than mammalian biology. Generally, the bugs that will make a cold-blooded fish living in a high-salt environment sick won't enjoy the warm-blooded lower-salt environment of a human, and vice versa. Except I'd forgotten what spectacular killers of bacteria drugs in the penicillin family are. So doing a little research, it turns out that if your aquarium is getting nasty with bacteria or your fish are getting ill from bacterial infections, you can indeed buy drugs like penicillin or amoxicillin to put in the water. But is this the same stuff a doctor might give you if you got an infection? Kinda. So before I go further, I must say that all of this advice is being given by an animal biologist. And really, if it isn't an apocalyptic scenario, go to your doctor, emergency room, or clinic and get professional medical assistance. Okay, back to the topic. Is fish medicine the same as the people stuff? For fish mox and fish pen, these are indeed the same active ingredients as human amoxicillin and penicillin respectively. And unlike the stuff at your local pharmacy, this stuff is sold right over the counter at your local pet store, or can be bought online. Since it is the same active ingredient as the human stuff, it's required by law, at least in the United States, check your local laws if you live abroad, to have the same capsule coloration and United States Pharmacopoeia code. You can cross-reference the code on medicine you bought online to verify the active ingredients as well as the dosage strength of the medication you now have. I don't feel comfortable giving out dosing regimes for human medication in this podcast, given that I'm not a physician. But I'll say that there are large numbers of medical websites like the Mayo Clinic that will tell standard dosing for adult humans and children. Also remember that most prescriptions recommend 5-7 to seven day dosage of the drug, even though most people will feel better after 2-3 to three days. The convention is that some infections, the bacterial colony will be weakened by the drug, enough that symptoms may disappear, but they will still exist in large enough numbers that reinfection could occur, and since the surviving bacteria has been exposed to the drug, chances of an antibiotic-resistant infection is much higher. A resistant infection in a scenario with no medical assistance available is likely a death sentence, so I can't stress this enough. If you have access to doctors and medical facilities, use them. I must also add that manufacture of drugs for humans is done under an entirely different oversight than drugs for animals. So while the drugs are similar, there may be some differences in quality and secondary ingredients. Would I take these drugs if I was trapped someplace away from medical assistance and was concerned I was suffering from a debilitating and potentially deadly infection? Yes, but only in this scenario. Otherwise, I'd go to the doctors and get the proper human drugs. Okay, so now that you have decided to get some fish medicine to put in your bug out bag or your just-in-case stash, now what? Well, medication, like food, has an expiration date. And for best practice, you should discard all unused medication that has past expiration and replace it with fresh medication. This stuff isn't exactly cheap, and constant replacement costs will add up. Is there a way to extend the shelf life of a drug? Well, we must first consider the factors that make medications go bad. Light, heat, oxygen, and moisture. All these drugs are sold in sealed, light-blocking packaging. But we must note that these packaging only need to prevent degradation for the shelf life of the drug. So if you really wanted to make some medication last longer, you could do this. Seal the factory packaging in a vacuum seal bag, along with a silica gel desiccant, and pump out as much of the air as possible. This should take care of oxygen and moisture. Then wrap it in foil, preferably a Mylar vacuum seal bag, to add extra layer of protection, as well as light-blocking. Then toss it in your freezer, preferably the bottom of a non-defrosting chest freezer, as those get about as cold as anything you can get outside of industrial products. Even after all of this, I wouldn't necessarily trust a drug a year past its expiration date. 
so it's all up to you, the prepper, if this is worth it as a precaution. Also note that these factors affect all medications. So if you take medications for a condition or keep a stash of over-the-counter medicines, you never want them in a bright location with high heat and humidity. So if you keep your medicine in the bathroom next to the shower you use, you might want to put them someplace different that isn't constantly experiencing warm, humid air. I'll close by saying that this advice should not be confused with actual medical advice. But if you're careful, this stuff could save a life if things ever went pear-shaped. Not only can you subscribe or donate to the podcast, you can also make a contribution to the LGBT Training Ammo Fund. Go to gunblogvarietycast.com and click on the LGBT Training Ammo Fund donation button in the right sidebar. I'll use this money to pay for range fees, targets, and yes, ammo for the people I teach. And thanks for your support. What's the scariest thing ever? Well, if you're NBC News, it's an 80% AR-15 lower. Or as they call it, A Ghost Gun! In This This Week week in Anti-Gun Nuttery. NBC News does an anti-gun hit piece. You know it's gonna be good. Let's dive right into the first sound clip. This is a real gun. And anyone can buy it. No background check required. It's perfectly legal. Why? Because it was built from a kit. Oh no! Ghost guns! This is one of those things that most people don't know about, many don't care about, and the anti-gun nuts are up in arms about. Let's see how much they can twist the facts and try to give us nightmares. Arriving in pieces, so technically when it's shipped, it's not a gun. Now that's misleading right there. They imply that if you ship a gun like a model kit, completely in pieces, it sidesteps all the laws. Then you break out the tools, put it together, and ta-da! A working gun! There's one problem with this. Since guns are so heavily regulated, you can't just pull the slide off your pistol or pull the bolt carrier out of your rifle and make the gun disappear. Instead, one part is selected, and that is legally the firearm. This is generally the rifle's receiver, or a pistol's frame, though many new pistols like Sean Sig consider the fire control group the firearm. This serialized part is the one part of the gun that must be sold through an FFL with a background check, and all gun laws apply. This allows the gun owner to customize, repair, or replace parts of the gun without messing with federal law. For an AR-15, the receiver starts out life as a block of aluminum. Do we consider aluminum blocks guns? No, that's silly. What about a block in the vague shape of an AR-15? No. How about if it has a threaded hole for the buffer tube? See where I'm going? A line had to be drawn, and it was at 80% completion. Before that, it's not a gun. After that, it is a gun. These so-called ghost guns are completely untraceable. No serial number. So he's right. The law states that if you make your own firearm, it doesn't require a serial number or marking. But most people like to do it anyway for legal reasons. Namely, so if the gun is lost or stolen, it can be easily returned to them. Plus, if you ever want to transfer the gun, either as a sale or part of your estate, it would need a serial number and markings on who made it and where. Of course, the ATF highly discourages transfers of homemade guns, lest they consider you a firearms manufacturer rather than someone just making a gun for personal use. But what's with the interest in tracing the firearm? There are several states in America that have complete or partial registries of firearms. Those registries are almost never used by law enforcement to prosecute criminals or solve crimes. Canada had a full registry, and law enforcement used it so infrequently that the people decided it was too expensive to maintain and scrapped the long gun portion. Their current handgun registry isn't any better. 
The idea that a gun being traceable is particularly useful to law enforcement is silly. Sillier yet. All you have to do is go online and there are dozens of websites selling these gun kits. So they bought a gun online with a credit card that has a number linked to their name and address. And then they had to give an address where this untraceable ghost gun needed to be shipped. Seems they're leaving quite a paper trail for an untraceable gun. People that could not pass a background check are purchasing these unfinished receiver kits and making firearms because they know that if they went to a gun store, they wouldn't be able to pass a background check. This is ATF agent Graham Barlow making much ado about nothing. Police say the criminals are already onto it. Ghost guns being used in shootings across the country, from Maryland to California. Here's something interesting. Doing research on this, I wasn't easily able to find crime stories where homemade guns were used. I did find an article from Michael Bloomberg's The Trace listing three attacks in California where people use homemade guns. But the most recent one cited was in 2015. And I did find a 2016 story where a Maryland drug dealer had a pair of homemade guns on him, and while he attempted to shoot the police with them, no shots were fired. Really, criminals don't use ghost guns in crime. As a rule, they steal them or have someone with a clean background make a straw purchase. And all of that is moot. If you can't pass a background check, you can't possess a firearm. So theoretically, a gangbanger could buy an 80% kit and make a rifle without having to pass a background check. But if the police ever caught him with that gun, he better be ready to spend some quality time in federal prison. All the parts you need come together in the box. In fact, the part that makes it a gun even comes 80% complete. So it takes him just a couple of hours to put it together. So here's that part kit they bought online. They had it shipped to ATF agent Rick Vasquez, who then completed the 80% lower and assembled the working rifle. In the video, you see him driving a screw into the jig with a hand drill and a few quick clips of him assembling the rifle. Is that all it takes? Well, they weren't clear in the report what kit they bought, but I found a similar kit and put the finishing video in the show notes. In the video, they state that to complete the gun, you will need the kit, as well as safety glasses, a drill press, a hand drill, a vise, and a Dremel tool. Agent Vasquez has a nice machine shop behind him in the video, but the reporters failed to make note of this. In reality, he had to mill out the fire control pocket and drill the necessary holes for the trigger and safety in all the springs. This is a blatant lie of omission. So maybe it took him only a few hours to complete his lower and make a working gun, but do you think the local meth head is going to have the same tools and skills? And even if Mr. Meth Head did have all those tools and hadn't pawned them for drug money, wouldn't it be easier for him just to steal the gun or just buy one from out of Ice Dog and Ray Ray's trunk down in Dot Ave and Southie? Since Agent Vasquez has a nice little machine shop at his home and obviously the skills to use it, do you think he could sidestep this kit and make his own receiver using only unregulated raw materials? Now, just to be even-handed, they go and interview Chuck Schumer. What are you doing to close this loophole? Well, we're going to try to pass legislation. The trouble is the NRA is so unreasonable and has such power in the Congress. You'd think this should pass like that, but it's going to be a long, hard road. Yeah, the NRA is so unreasonable. They won't inconvenience a bunch of law-abiding hobbyists by forcing them to submit to onerous regulations on something that simply isn't used by criminals. The horror. So what's the NRA's response? After repeated calls and emails from NBC News, the NRA didn't comment. Can you blame them?
Hello, NRA? This is NBC News. Yes, the network that employed Katie Couric and Rachel Maddow. Yeah, we're writing a seething anti-gun hit piece, and we'd love a statement from you that we can quote out of context. Hello? Hello? Anti-gunners never argue in good faith. In addition to appearing here, Weird is a regular host on The Squirrel Report and blogs at weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. Plug of the week. So Weird, I guess you've got the plug of the week this week. What do you got for us? Well, you and Aaron have both been talking about booze, so I, I, I felt the need to join in. So uh, one of the my more recent finds for my liquor cabinet is New Amsterdam Gin. I love gin, and this was pretty cool because, all right, number one, very reasonably priced. Number two, it's softer than most of the London dry gins. This is an American-made gin. It's actually made in Modesto, California by E&J Spirits. I have no idea why they call it New Amsterdam if it's made in California. <laughs> gin needs, uh, needs juniper to be its definition. It's essentially juniper-flavored vodka by definition. But there's a lot of citrus notes and specifically orange, and it doesn't have that beat you over the head with juniper flavor that a lot of London dries have. So if you've had some bad experiences with gin, this might be one to try out. This is also a go-to gin for my classic James Bond drink, the Vesper Martini. The softer gin tastes similar to James Bond's request to cut three measures of Gordon's gin with one measure of vodka. I use the New Amsterdam just straight up, and then I add one measure of Lille Blanc, some orange bitters, and some pickled lemon slices, and there we go. You've got a Vesper Martini. So you're telling me that all gin is is vodka with juniper flavor? I'm not super familiar with the original Dutch uh, Genever or Genevier. I, I don't know how they pronounced it. Uh, that might be a little bit different, but modern, like your London dry gins, your Tanqueray, your Bombay's, mm-hmm. what you consider gin, beef eater, is essentially vodka that has been flavored and flavored specifically with juniper. Okay, so by cutting Gordon's gin three to one with vodka, basically he's just making less juniper flavor. That That's it, is, is I've had it at bars where they've just done it exactly as Fleming wrote it out and... It just, it essentially waters down the gin, but waters it down with more alcohol instead of water. Uh So it just has a little bit of a softer flavor. It's not quite as robust. Okay. The only gin I've ever tried was Tanqueray. And of course, it was a fraternity thing where it was the Tanqueray relay where you had to take a shot of gin, hold it in your mouth, and then run an obstacle course. So that was a horrible experience. That sounds delicious to me. (laughs) You're saying this would be better? I think probably for most people that aren't, though, I don't like gin. Maybe you still won't like gin. It depends on how severe, but it's it's a much a much more approachable gin. Okay. Well, you're going to have to try this out at the NRA annual meeting when we're in the house. Woohoo! I do plan to be mixing drinks there. We're going to figure out the logistics of what people like, what people want, and then make a booze run because I'm not flying okay. with my mini bar. <laughs> well, I've never had a martini in my life, so I'll give it a try. As long as you're making it for me. I can fix you up. All right. Well, that's our show for the week. Remember that the Gunblog Variety Cast is a member of the Self-Defense Radio Network. Find the show notes at gunblogvarietycast.com forward slash episode 132.
Okay, so uh, what else are we going to be doing at the NRA Annual Meeting House? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gun Blog Variety Cast. Music courtesy of Rob Allen at blog.roballen.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. This podcast is made possible by the Firearms Policy Coalition and by contributions from listeners like you. is what I assume is a New England phenomenon. When the weather gets above the when the weather gets out of the 50s here, people just get close as when the weather gets out what the fuck? I quit. I'm going to bed. You got nothing to say. I like bikes. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. And face several charges including arrest and face several and face several charges including resisting arrest you know, uh, your, your, your Remington model, model 70 is a, uh, is 700, excuse me. Yeah. Your Remington model 700 hunting gun. This is a URS production.